I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now then, it's a real pleasure to have our next guest on the line. For fans of the Price of Football podcast, like Andy and myself, it's writer and comedian turned football finance enthusiast, Kevin Hunter-Day. How are you doing, Kevin? Um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, enthusiast is probably putting it a bit, a bit far. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, increasingly knowledgeable about, but far from expert. Yes, yeah, so, um, it's a strange thing. Cause I, I, it's a podcast that I love doing, but I wish didn't have to exist, basically. Yeah, exactly. So you've got a few good news stories on them, particularly stuff like the Newcastle you know, trust doing all their good stuff in the community. And then you have a hell of a lot of bad news stories. So I guess it's a bit up and down in terms of your emotions when you finish the podcast. We we try to highlight good news stories where we can. And, and increasingly, Tom, the good news stories come from fans, basically. It's fans initiatives and, and people like Marcus Rashford. And, yeah. Kieran, and I, Kieran and I are both very, very keen to to let the world know that the image of football that many people have of it is is incorrect. You know, footballers are not all overpaid prima donnas. There's, there are one or two of those in the Premier League, but there are one or two of those in banks and legal companies as well. And for the most part, footballers are people who are lucky enough to have a talent but love what they're doing. And, and most of them don't get paid that much for it. And a lot of them end their careers with another 50 years ahead of them struggling for money the same as the rest of us do and it's that's that's why we really try and focus on some of the good news stories but unfortunately the good news stories are always outweighed by the bad and and Kieran and I are always kind of talking about that happy day in the future when we don't need to exist when football governance finally sorts itself out when the EFL finally sorts its fit and proper person test out when the money that's washing around football is finally equally distributed and we won't have any stories, um, which will be a sad day, but it'll be a great day for football, basically. It's a, it's a strange pod because the producer guy who we talk about on on, on the pod quite a lot uh, and his strange inability to pay us anything for doing it, um, he approached me this time last year, so we've just done our 100th. So he approached me in October to say that he had this idea for a football finance podcast. And basically, my response was, "How did you get my number?" Um, uh, and I, I just couldn't see that it would be of interest to anybody, to be perfectly honest. And I, I told him that, um, and then he said, "No, we, we, we think it will work." I've, I, I know this guy called Kieran Maguire, who's an expert in football finance. We just need basically a, a financial idiot to host it. And I said, "Well, you've come to the right person if you need an idiot." Um, and it, it, it just started from there because I find I'm, I'm legendarily bad with finances. Even uh, I'm a middle aged man. Uh, I'm not allowed to have a credit card anymore because I'm so bad with with finances. <laughs> but and and we did the first couple 
and they were really interesting. And then there was an issue because at the end of episode four, Kieran finally revealed that he was a Brighton fan, which was oh, if he dear. if he if he, oh dear was partly my my reaction. <laughs> it was a longer version of oh dear because um, I genuinely would have thought twice about doing it if I'd known he was a Brighton fan beforehand. But we'd we'd got on so well. Uh, that I, of course, I couldn't think of stopping it. But that, unfortunately, or fortunately, if you, from whatever point of view you're looking at it, we our start coincided with the the demise of Berry Football Club. Mm. And basically, I think what happened was people latched on to our righteous anger and our indignation about what was happening to Berry, and because Kieran was able to give us full details of what that man Steve Dale was doing to the club and how he'd come into the club. And I think people just connected to the fact that we were so furious about this and so keen to bring it to the world. And then unfortunately realising that it, it wasn't just happening at Bury, it was happening all over English football and all over European football and all over world football. So I think fans of every club just started to realise this pod was out there. And also fans of every club listened to it praying that their club's not mentioned on it, basically, because it's a good week for your club if you don't get mentioned on Price of Football. Definitely. I think one of the beauties of it is that there is that almost double act thing going on in terms of you're a comedian uh, with yourself and Kieran, that Kieran is, I think he's got an accountancy background. He's very good with the numbers and, you know, really getting to the the heart of the matter financially. And then you've got more of a layman's understanding of things from a, a genuine football fans perspective and Andy would you say that's the the real beauty of, of the price of football podcast definitely yeah um there's obviously been a, a sort of uh there's a, there's a space in the in the market um for I don't know yeah for for sort of um making it digestible because um sure you know, uh, sort of financial podcast. I mean, Kevin said he's so bad with money that he's not allowed to a credit card anymore. Uh, I could, I could trump that. Um, so I'm, I'm singing from the same song sheet there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just a good listen with a, a little bit, you know, light and shade. I think you would say is, is the key to that podcast, and it's, it's a really good listen. Yeah, we tried. The, the thing with the double act thing is that it's, it's genuine. I, th- I think if you try and create those things, if you sit down and have a meeting and say, let's, let's. Let's try and do a double act thing. It doesn't work, but when it when it happens organically, and the thing is that I am genuinely surprised by what Kieran tells me. I, I've got this concept that I've come up with, which is professional laziness, because I I, I think if I research the subject beforehand as well as Kieran, then it it doesn't work because I need to be getting the information at the same time as the the listeners are. But also there is a genuine surprise because. I was actually quite few. I'm, I'm a comedian. Yeah, I'm a, I work in showbiz. I've I've woken up in skips in Edinburgh in the morning with strange people. I've done stuff, but it turns out that the the accountant in this process has has tra- basically travelled the world, having relationships with various supermodels and glamorous women, and and doing. And he's a teetotaler. He's never touched drugs in his life, and yet he's he's had this. And I don't get. I really cross that an accountant has. <laughs> And has, has had this lifestyle and some of his stories because he, he he worked as um as an, an official receiver and administrator at some stage as well which that's one of his areas of expertise you know and he, he had to he had to run a blackpool nightclub that went into administration so he ran <laughs> he ran that for three months and fell foul of some local blackpool drug dealers and had to sort that out and was was offered was offered all sorts of things in kind by local professional ladies and then he ran a sex shop in brighton 
he he worked basically worked for the Russian mafia in Moscow for a couple of years till he got run out of the country. And it's 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 it just it makes me laugh because because we're both we're both similar similar ages. We're both you won't believe this to look at us, but we're both in our in our fifties and we're both from South London. Funnily enough, which again it really annoys me that. He, well, if he supported his local club Mill, that'd be just as bad. But we, we're, we're both we're both hopeless romantics about football. Not not yeah. in a, not in a nostalgic way. And it's I don't I I, I was watching football games in the seventies and the eighties, and I know how bad it was. Not just the football, but the way we were treated by the press, by the police, by the football yeah. authorities. I know how bad things were. I don't yearn for those days at all. I still, I will happily watch the big match revisited over and over, and I'll talk to anybody about football history. But I think football is 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 better now. But it it needs to be fairer, and that's we sure. both have this romantic notion of football clubs being at the heart of a community. Like when I was growing up, I learned my social history and my my geography of England through through loving football. It's like, you know, I didn't, I knew that Luton Town made hats. I knew that in Walsall, that's where saddles were made because of the, you know, I knew that Northampton was the centre of the shoe industry, but only because I knew that through Northampton's nickname and their badge. And, uh, you know, for me, football clubs represent working class communities very, very well. And I, I'm, I love history and I love the history of football. And it's been, it's fascinating to, to look at the history of football clubs and it, it really really upsets Kieran and I when people don't understand where football clubs lie in the community like, you know Berry Football Club disappears and it's not just that some players are put out of work and some some coaches are put out of work and some staff are put out of work it's the whole community suffers you know cafes and bars shut down because they haven't got football fans to to go into them on a, on a Saturday or a Tuesday night printers shut down all the kids who are working cash in hand on a Saturday they lose their money and and not only that but people don't understand the the fit the mental well-being I mean it's, it's a strange thing to say if you know about a, a club that's not particularly successful but there are tens of thousands of people who will be devastated that Berry Football Club doesn't exist anymore. It's the same as you two. If Northampton Town didn't exist anymore, Palace uh, in 2010 were five minutes away from folding, five minutes away from folding. And then, and, you know, for all the talk of Phoenix clubs, yeah, that would be fun, a Phoenix club would be fun. But we, we nearly went out of business. And yeah, when, when that didn't happen, I'm not I'm not ashamed to say, I was working, I was writing and I got news for you that day. When the news came through that we'd been saved, I went to the toilet and I cried for 10 minutes because the thought of mm-hmm. there not being a Crystal Palace football club for me to for me to support, and it's not as you two will know. It's not the, the it's not just the game. It's it's what my wife says. It's going to the same pub and talking the same bollocks to the same people at the same yeah. table for yeah. twenty years, and then going yeah. back after the game and doing exactly the same thing. That's what's important about it, and that's what Kieran and I try and get across. That all these all these f- financial facts and figures we talk about, they're not just financial facts and figures. They're they're affecting the livelihood of people and the mental well-being of football fans. So, so yeah. that was a long answer to a to a, a short. <laughs> question. Well, no, I, th- I think well. that's right because um, that's the beauty of podcasts like uh, the Price of Football and the one that that Tom started up, um, and you know a few others in that in that sphere because things have changed so much in the last generation. You know, the sort of post ninety two generation that it's important to have this link and this kind of 
you know, fighting against the dying of the light, really, about what things were like. And it's obviously striking that balance in between, you know, sort of just sitting back in reverie at how things were. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's still important to kind of remind folk that grew up knowing nothing but the Premier League, that things were a little bit different and, you know, the balances were a little bit sort of different back in the day. So it's almost like a, a sort of public service in a way, I think, a lot of these um, a lot of these pods that talk about, hang on a minute, things things were a little bit different sort of pre-92. Well, that's a point about, you make two points there that are really important, Andy. One is about pre-92. It's like my son's 25. He's a very good stand-up comedian. He loves Palace, season ticket holder. Um, now he is. It, it's, I'll probably tell you later on how that came about. But he... Yeah, he he can't imagine a, a time when like my favourite Palace goal was scored by Jim Cannon in 1980 when we went top of the old Division One. We beat Ipswich 4-1, and Jim Cannon scored. Depending on what time of the night you talk to him and how much he's had to drink, it was either 15, <laughs> 20, 25, or 30 yards out. But it, it was a pretty son can't imagine a time when the only place you could see a goal again was in your mind because yes. he's been brought up being able to see every goal from every game in every country in the world, basically. And, and my son and his his friends, for them, just being in the Premier League isn't enough. You know, we have to be pushing for, for Champions League. But for my generation, for the for the mates that I've been going to Palace with for 50 years, just being in the Premier League is, is more than enough, thank you very much, because it, it means that we retain our financial security for time. And your point about pods as well is, is really interesting. I love doing the, the Palace pod because... You don't have to put anything into context. It's like if I'm if I do talk sport as I do quite a lot. If I'm doing Hawksby and Jacobs, and the subject of a particular Palace player comes up, I have to explain to people who that player was, where he came from, and and we were chatting beforehand before you started recording about things we've got in common, and and I'm sure we'll talk about Eddie McGoldrick later on. But yeah, you, know, you mentioned you know, Eddie McGoldrick had to be tough to to survive in Graham Carr's dressing room. Now you don't have to explain that when you're doing the pod because you're talking to to Northampton fans, and and yeah. the, that's why pods are so good and so important. And and people now, it's it's like it used to be with Radio Four. People used to be so loyal to Radio Four. Now they're really loyal to to podcasts. And mm-hmm. it, it's brilliant that you don't have to explain things. And also, I'm sure it's the same with your pod that you can refer back to things that happened on previous pods, knowing happily that most of the people listening will know what you're talking about and not having to explain various things about Northampton town is, is fantastic because you can just immerse yourself in talking about, you know, the current problems and the current joys of Northampton, but also the, the history. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Price of football pod that um, you mentioned earlier. I mean, um, you know, sort of sitting with a a marketing guy with, um, you know, sort of a whiteboard again, that probably doesn't get past that stage, you know, sort of being allowed to develop it organically is what podcasts are all about and absolutely yeah the, the the ready-made audience is there and it just everyone and something i've learned um you know through tom a lot more social media savvy than me um it's just not all about oh we need to you know we need to get likes as quickly as possible it's just enjoy it and you know see what happens really going back to the premier league point that kevin was talking about and this is actually probably something you could talk about on your podcast at some point you might have already talked about it on the price of football um it was the fifth anniversary of Brian Lomax's death this week who started the first ever supporters trust at Northampton mm-hmm. we're talking about post pre, uh, Premier League and you know um, when that that big ba- big bang happened in the 90s Brian Lomax set up the first ever supporters trust at Northampton in 1992 
same year as the Premier League came into existence. And he was basically saying that fans should be partners in the running of clubs. They don't necessarily have to own it, but they should be partners. They should have access to the books. Never really give money unless they get shares in return, representation and all these very simple messages. And the fact that the Premier League burst into life at the same time and completely obliterated that message is sort of half of the reason we are where we are. And you look at that football task force they set up in about 1997. Andy Burnham was involved in that. Yeah. Uh, Brian Oaks went on to set that up as well via Supporters Direct. And they basically said, we want a fan on every board in the country and we want, you know, cheaper tickets for the disabled and, you know, the unemployed and just very basic safeguards. And the Premier League, the FA and the Football League all rejected it. Yeah. So you've got to know your history uh, about this when we talk about, you know, the the, the wider sort of themes about this that there was we've got to where we are in football because a lot of mistakes and decisions were made to the detriment of supporters and the wider health of clubs do you sort of agree Kev? I absolutely agree and and I I I know of Brian in passing because when the Palace Supporters Trust was set up back in the day uh, a long time ago Northampton's Supporters Trust um, helped advise us on that Uh, yeah I think Brian would have been part of that the, the openness you talk about is one of the things that Kieran Maguire bangs on about all the time. Football clubs, every football fan uh, should be allowed to see the books of football. You know, and, and football clubs yeah. are legally, they're legally obliged as companies to reveal certain financial facts, but they don't have to reveal it all. And fans should be allowed access to that information. And the thing is as well that football clubs, even now, most football clubs and most owners of football clubs don't realise how savvy football fans are. They see us as commodities quite often. To be fair, Steve Parrish doesn't fit into that, but most football clubs still see us as commodities. Simon Jordan very much saw us. He never, he didn't, he wouldn't use the word support. He used the word clients. You know, we, we're not clients. We're, we're Palace fans. We'll be at Palace long after you've tried to ruin it. Um, and you, you can't treat us like that. And football fans are intelligent people. Yeah, it, it, you, you go to the pub that we go to before Palace games and there, there are lawyers in there, there's theatre producers, yeah. there's accountants, you know, there's builders and there's taxi drivers as well, but they all they all know more about the club than the people who own the club. You know, if somebody buys Northampton Town, you know more about Northampton Town than that person will ever know. It's the same with, with some players who get a bit awkward when you you start talking to them about Palace because they they don't love the club as much as you do. They don't know the club as much as you do. There are, there are exceptions, people like Damien Delaney, who researched the history of Palace because he thought that was important. But a lot of footballers, unfortunately, you know, they're employed by a club and that's it's as simple as that. If another club offers them more money, they'll go somewhere else and who could blame them? But we, the clubs belong to us spiritually. And again, this is where people accuse me of being hopelessly romantic but I firmly believe that the clubs belong to us spiritually more than they belong to the owners and we should have access there should be fan involvement at, at every level and, and Steve Parrish was was brilliant when Steve Parrish and the other three support the club their openness was fantastic their transparency was fantastic the the longer we stay in the Premier League the the less that becomes and you know, we used to have one press guy, Terry Byfield. He's still there. He's been with us for 25 years. But now we've got a whole press and media communications department. There's about 25 people there. And that, it doesn't sit well with us as Palace fans because we're not, we don't want to be a global brand. We want to be a successful football club. And I think a lot of clubs, and I think Liverpool are particularly guilty of this, in that, in seeking that global brand awareness, they leave behind 
the Liverpool fans from Liverpool and the local fans. They, you know, they they sell the club on the the famous atmosphere at Anfield, but they don't realise that the famous atmosphere at Anfield is provided by people who are travelling two or three miles to get there. They, and I think a lot of clubs are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And, and you're absolutely right. There should be openness and transparency. There should be a fan on a board or a fan's representative on the board. And, and fine, you know, I wouldn't expect to be involved in, you know, Network Southeast's discussions about my train services, but I would like to be consulted. And I, I think it's the same with, with football fans. And the, the, the problem with supporters' trust, and we, we talk about supporters' trust a lot, is you can only go so far with a supporters' trust. And it, it there's always a difficulty. I mean, we, we were talking to the chairman of, of Dulwich Hamlet recently, and there's a, there's a difficulty there because he's a Dulwich fan. He loves the club. But him and the supporters between them, it's a supporter-owned club, but they can only take Dulwich so far. They can't afford to get Dulwich into League Two, for example, or into League One. For that to happen, they would need outside investment. But then that would change the nature of of what the club is like. And and that's how I feel about about Palace. We're not a London club like Chelsea and Arsenal are. We're, we're different to that. We're a, we're a, a South East London club. Most of our fans live within 30 miles of the ground. And I, I don't want to jeopardise that in a in a mad search to get someone in to take us to the Champions League. It's the same with Northampton Town. I imagine the vast majority of your fans are only travelling 10, 15 miles to get to Northampton Town. And that's brilliant. And of course, you've got fans all over the world. There'll be reasons for the for why they support you. But it, it's, the, it's the fans who travel 10, 15 miles who are the most important fans, as far as I'm concerned. And yeah. increasingly, football clubs forget those people. But that, but that feeds entirely into, and I know you're an advocate of it as well, the 50 plus one German model. Absolutely. What you were talking about could easily be coming from a German fan, but they've just got a, a system in place which guarantees that you don't have an errant owner coming in. You, the, yeah. the members always have the whip hand, but you've got another 49% that you can use for investment. And yeah. in my mind, there's no reason, apart from the funding element, that why 50 plus one couldn't work at Crystal Palace. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. And, and, even things like safe standing, for example, yeah, Steve yeah. Parrish knows. Steve Parrish has done private research into safe standing. Eighty-five percent, I think it was, of the Palace fans that he he researched season tickets are, are advocates of of safe standing. Yeah. But as he says himself, when it comes to taking that decision, we won't be. It won't be the fans that they listen to. That will be taken on a purely financial basis. If if football clubs in the Premier League can work out how to get as much money from safe standing as they currently get from from seats they will do it it's as simple as that they don't they don't care whether fans want it or or not and there's a whole range of issues at every club that they don't really care what the fans think and and there are some clubs probably 20 or 30 Kieran reckons where they are they are run on perfectly good financial models and and Kieran always says if you can't have 50 plus 1 then the best thing is a benevolent dictator basically the best thing is a, a, a local almost that 70s model where people like Burnley were owned by a local uh, businessman that's that's the other the, that's the least worst option as far as Kieran's concerned if you can't have a club that's owned by fans but it's it's almost impossible to see Premier League owners agreeing to any you'd almost have to start football again basically for that for the 50 plus one to happen certainly in the, in the Premier League but I, I think we can learn a lot from from German football and again Exactly. We still t- we still tend to be quite insular in this country. We still tend to have that attitude. Well, it's like we we invented the game. It's our game. We'll we'll do it how we want. But in, increasingly, yeah. it's, it's it's not our game anymore, is it? 
Well, that's very true. So let's not get too much into the uh, socio-political landscape of England, but there's definitely a link in my mind from the Tory governments, essentially, and the breaking up of the large-scale employers. You know that 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 broke broke communities, and this is just a, a further contraction of communities via football and the government, Tory government. A lot of people are holding out that they're going to help, and I think that you should use an old-fashioned phrase: you're pissing in the wind if you think the Tories are going to help football too much. Um, let's. We've got. We've got. Seriously, we've we've got we've got important things to talk about. We've got Eddie McGoldrick's moustache to come on to. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Let's move on to uh, let's move on to your book, actually. But if I could just go on. Okay, if if I could just take you on the point you made there, Tom. Yeah. And I know we, we are going to talk about my book as well, um, in which Northampton features, along with uh, most of the football clubs in the league. One of the things I felt passionate about. Growing up, and I grew up, and, and uh, you know, I was I was an alternative comedian. You know, my job was to bring down the government, and after eleven short years, we did it. Um, but one of the things that I've learned writing about every football club in the league, and and, and in particular, in the northwest and northeast, uh, and and in the in the Midlands, very much so as well, is that in the eighties and nineties, and people need to know this. Manufacturing towns had the heart ripped out of them. You know, industry disappeared, and the traditional industries of many towns totally disappeared. But the football clubs in, in places like Mansfield and Scunthorpe, which were once a, you know a proud mining area and a proud steel area, the football club is quite often the last thing for people to be proud of in in yeah. towns and cities that have mm. suffered. They've suffered austerity for 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 eight, nine, ten years, and they've had their their shopping centres taken away from them. They've had their industries taken away from them. They've had their jobs taken away from them. But they've still got their football clubs. And the football club becomes a source of a source of pride for towns like Mansfield and Scunthorpe because people will have heard of their, the, the football club at the very least. They'll know what kit they wear. They'll know what division they're in. And they, they become a source. Of, and, and that's why people get so anxious about that being taken away from them. You know, in, in Bury, Bury is a part of the world that has suffered in, incredibly in and to lose a football club on top of that, it's 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 an outrage. The fact that that football club was allowed to to disappear, the fact that Bill Kenwright, the EFL wouldn't allow Bill Kenwright to bail them out because Bill Kenwright owns Everton, and and Bill Kenwright said, look, we can find we can find ways out of this. He offered them enough money to save the club, and they wouldn't. That that's an outrage. It's it just mm. it should never have happened. There's no excuse for any football club to be allowed to go to the wall. And yes, I know people will say, well. Other businesses are allowed to go to the wall. Well, that shouldn't happen either. But football is different. It, it is different, and I, I feel sorry for people who don't understand that distinction. It is different, and a, a town losing its football club is a is a disaster way more than a town losing a, 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 you know, a, a paper chase or whatever. I couldn't think of a decent example, and it wouldn't offend somebody who had been made redundant by a paper chase. But you know what I mean? It is. Yeah, yeah. It it, it is important, and it is different, and it needs to be governed better and it comes back to to what you said before about supporters trust and supporters being involved in the football team because even if a, if, if a fan on the board can't say or hasn't got the business knowledge to say well I don't know whether this financial model is the right idea the fan can at least say no the fans don't they won't like that as speaking as a fan I don't think that's a good idea you know if if Cardiff City had a fan representative when when they were taken over and the new owner said we're going to change the kit to red the fans representative would say that's a terrible idea don't do it you will cause trouble but yeah. he, he he knew so little about the club that he thought he could just willy-nilly change a club's kit 
and because it's a to a lucky color in his in his own culture, which is which is fine. But you know, if you don't yeah. understand football culture, you you yeah. Sorry, I do. I'm getting carried away again. I'm sorry. Let's just, let's <laughs> well, no, because, but I, I, the the flip side of that, I think I completely agree 100. percent But it's the it's the cynical leveraging of the football's difference that I think um, you know is the is the main source of anger by. Um, you know, from from people that uh, remember the pre ninety two days, because the only reason um, your man there at Cardiff can do that, or you know, um, an inordinate amount of clubs will charge fifty pound for a training shirt, yeah. and then try and do try and do the fifteen pound uh, pay per view match, which, well, I mean, this spider's on into another debate because that's that's got shut down because of, sort of you know, yeah. bad press and family action. But it's it's the leveraging of that unending reservoir of goodwill and support that people will always have yeah. for their clubs that people keep paying this money that's yeah. why they keep doing it do you know what i mean so that that equates to a cynical leveraging of that sort of um, you you almost can't sort of write it down on paper what it is about football that makes people support their club yeah um and so they do know do you know what i mean but it's just the cynical leveraging of that difference they're stupid. They'll always pay it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and years and years ago, the idea of shame, as we know in wider society, just up and left. You know, it left the building. We've seen it with with Trump. Um, yeah. Because years years ago, they they would have been in in the mind's eye. Well, nobody will ever do that. Yeah. You know, how 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 can one look themselves in the mirror? They yeah. can actually. Yeah. They, they're perfectly fine with looking themselves in the mirror, and, and it's 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 been a slow process of coming to terms with the fact that those that rule us in all sorts of ways, uh, be it you know sports, politics, or things that sort of really matter in the world, they sort of have no shame, and yeah. it's 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 trying to sort of um, I don't know, sort of get get on board with that slowly, which which I mean, is difficult. I, I think the pandemic has had an effect i think probably even steve parish and i know people at the club and i've spoken to some of them i know at newcastle they were particularly caught short by the fact that at palace you know, steve parish asked us to buy season tickets knowing that we might not have games to go to and i was one of the people who made a, a difficult decision i've lost a lot of work this year my, my wife and my son have lost all their work and i had to find the money to buy a season ticket because i i understood his logic about cash flow etc yeah. but Half the Palace, and and in 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 all our years in the Premier League, we sell our eighteen thousand season tickets in a week, basically. And this time, ten thousand people bought season tickets. A lot of them on instalments. It's the same in Newcastle. The season ticket take up was was very low. And Steve Parish has had to learn that the reason is because we're a club in a in a, in Croydon, South London, where people have lost money. They've lost their income. They haven't got a lot of money in the first place. And suddenly. That blind loyalty is being it's being forgotten because people yeah. go, I, I need this six hundred quid. I love the club, and when football comes back, I'll find a way of getting uh, getting to the game. But I need the money more than you do, and I think that's the first time that's happened in probably in twenty years. I think for the first time, as you say, Andy, club owners have suddenly realised they can't rely on that that yeah. blind loyalty anymore, which they have been able to do in the past, and which, as you say, they've exploited mercilessly to be perfectly honest i mean yeah I, I know people who have struggled they've got two kids and the kids want to go to every game and they they, they find so they have to make sacrifices in other areas to to take their kids to the game and of course then the kids want everything they want they want as you say they want the shirts they want the kit mm. you know the, the whole idea it still infuriates me that 
every year we have a discussion about what Palace's kit's going to be next season. It's like we it's it's red and blue stripes. Simple. <laughs> That's all it is. And if if I had my way, it'd be claret and blue stripes again. But this nonsense that you have to have, and they come up with these stupid marketing ideas, like the fade, which is a stripe that doesn't go to the bottom of the shirt. It's like. <laughs> Because they know that people simply have to have the new shirt, the latest shirt. Yeah. And Steve Parrish, I've had this discussion with him. He he knows that if he could sell Palace shirts without the sponsor's logo on, they would walk out of the shop. He absolutely yeah. knows that. He, he knows yeah. that if he was to sell plain red and blue striped shirts or plain claret and blue striped shirts with no sponsor's logo on, they would be the only shirts that fans buy. But, of course, they can't do that because the sponsors are paying them a shed load of money to have their, have their name everywhere. And now... You know, you see the news in Spain where the Spanish league have said that football clubs have got till the end of the season to lose gambling sponsors off the front of the shirts. I'm, I'm a hundred percent, I'm a hundred percent convinced that will happen in, in English football in the next two years, and that's going to be a problem for football clubs because gambling companies, most of whom can buy and sell every Premier League club there is, are the only people who can afford to pay the money that football clubs are demanding for front of shirt. Sponsorship, you know, the, the days, you know, our first our first club sponsor was a local vet. Those days are long gone. Those, those days are long gone when you've got Andrew Copeland, local solicitor, written on his shirt. Those days are long gone. But also, I, I, I think, it's good, I, Kevin, but it's no carpet super centre. Well, well, exactly. No. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think, in, I think in years to come, people will say, well, if you banned smoking and drinking companies having shirt sponsorship, how come you allowed gambling companies to carry on having shirt sponsorship because yeah. it's a massive Kevin, problem. can i put something to you kev can i put yes. something to you that do you know in terms of you're talking about there's a fear that if you prevent gambling companies or cigarette companies within the days gone by sponsoring clubs and football itself that you know that the arse might fall out of the industry because they're putting so much money in and, and also when you expand that out to the uh, people that are fit in proper in football yeah if you take the people that are in proper running clubs away from you know the English league system. How many are you actually going to have left? And is that the real fear that if you actually impose a proper fit and proper person's test, so that the whole thing's going to just you know collapse like a house of cards? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I, d- I think you've hit the nail on the head, Tom. I mean the the thing with the the gambling industry. So in, in horse racing, I love horse racing. I'm very I'm very fond. Of it. I don't I don't gamble, but I just like watching horse racing basically. But the the betting industry there pays a levy. The, the horse racing is able to continue to flourish because they charge the betting industry to have the information they need for, to get people to gamble on horses, basically. Because otherwise, yeah. the, you know, if the betting industry aren't told what horses are running on what races, they can't. Football, if football wants to continue its uneasy relationship with gambling companies, it needs to do the same thing. It needs to say to the government, look, it's not ideal, but we're charging the, the betting companies 10% for information that's a different story but you, I, I think you're absolutely right to say that the Premier League is certainly are terrified that they won't be allowed to have gambling sponsors but the, I think you're right that the EFL in particular if they start if they start applying the fit and proper person rules actually properly then I think you're absolutely right there's going to be a lot of clubs whose owners will wouldn't be allowed to take the club over Let's get onto your book now. A bit, okay. bit of a lighter chat about your your lovely new book that's come out. It's done really well. It's called um, "Who Are You? Ninety Two Football Clubs and Why You Should Support Them." Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book, Kevin? Yeah, I I've been obsessed with with reading and books. My dad taught me to read when I was four, uh, 
uh, in his words, because it might come in handy, son, you never know, which, and it, it, it did. And it used to annoy my mum, who's Irish, it used to drive her up the wall when I was a kid that I wasn't out in the street uh, climbing trees and fighting people like I should be. I was, I, I, I was indoors reading, basically, and I read books and I read football magazines and I was perfectly happy doing it. So I've always been obsessed with books. I've always wanted to write one. But for a long time, even despite what I do for a living, I had this kind of imposter syndrome where I thought, yeah, I'll never be able to get, write a book. Who's going to ask me to write a book? But I had the idea... A long time ago, and this is true, I talk about it in the book, I, I came home from a, a Palace game one evening, uh, about midnight, obviously, because you have to spend as long in the pub after most Palace games as you can. But and my son, who was eight then, um, was still awake, uh, which I thought was a bit odd. Uh, and my wife was sort of looking at me anxiously. So I, I said, yeah, everything all right? And he said, Dad, I've got something really important to ask you. So I said, yes. He said, can I support Blackburn? So I said, well... When you grow up and you've got your own house, you can support who you want. But in the meantime, put your palace pyjamas on, get underneath the palace duvet and say goodnight to Celeste Cat. Yeah. Um, but then I said to him, why why Blackburn? He said, look, Dad, you never come home happy from football. I said, well, that's partly the point. There's no, you, you don't sign up for fun. It's character building. Do you know what I mean? But he said, I, I just, I don't want to support Palace. I want to support a, 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 a successful team. And I've looked at all the teams in the league and talked to Mum and Blackburn, she reckons you don't hate Blackburn because it was after a Blackburn game that you told her you loved her for the first time. It's like, oh, clever mummy. Um, so I said it wasn't after a Blackburn game. I was, It was after a Blackburn game. It was the morning after. I wasn't drunk because she said I was hungover because it was an away game and the train broke down on the way back. But it, it just got me thinking then. I, the idea sort of stayed in my head that every football fan has this irrational dislike of of other clubs and and for a long time I thought that I'd love to write about this and I'd love to incorporate it into a history of football and I knew I was onto a winner when I was talking to a mate of mine I was working on eight out of ten cats and I was talking to a chap called John Smith who's the nicest bloke you could ever he's the nicest bloke you could ever meet uh and he's a West Ham fan home and away and, and I told him about the idea he went oh well you make sure you stick it to Oldham so I said what well, he said <laughs> and he, he explained to me why West Ham really really hate Oldham because they, they was it the six niler? Yeah, it was a six nil. But also they um, they scored a goal in extra time in the last game of the season, which meant they were champions. And West Ham were. So I thought, if the nicest man in the world gets so angry about Oldham, then I've definitely got an idea. And in the start of last year, through sheer economic necessity, I it's yeah, I'm freelance and has having one of those periods when there wasn't a lot of work going on. My wife had had, had to give up uh, work. She was working on Panto. She had to stop that. Because her dad was ill, so I thought I need I need to try and find a way of getting some money in, hopefully. And, and I started writing the book, and uh, luckily Bloomsbury commissioned it, and we we got it written. And the idea was that it would come out when England had just won the Euros, and people would be so excited about football. But the 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 idea of the club, so I wanted the book to be about those strange rivalries that people have, not just with their local rivals. But with every club, and because I could think of a reason for not liking every club, and some of them were very stupid. It's like being really cold at Carlisle. That's I'll never forget Carlisle for making me really cold for you know, and we lost, and it's a long way home when you're freezing, and it's my fault because we went up there in t-shirts and didn't realise it would be snowing in September. But it's that it's that level of trivial dislike. But I wanted it. I, I realised I couldn't sustain a whole book on that, so I wanted to write a kind of left field working class history of each club. Um, but I wanted to make sure that each club was treated 
in the same way so that there's there's as much about Exeter as there is about Spurs basically so I wanted the book to be not an autobiography at all and not a nostalgia fest as we talked about I just wanted it to reflect how important football is to every to every fan but I also wanted people to really like I talk about my mates Chirpy and Roy and Steve and, and Gaz and I wanted people to go yeah, I've got a Steve and a Roy. I've got someone who behaves like that. I've got a bad, you know, and I wanted to talk about the fact that if if I go through the wrong door in the pub before a game, I have to go back out and come in the, the right door again. It's like, because even at our age, these things are, are important. And I wanted I wanted football fans to be able to read a book that they recognise. And, and very early on in the process, my editor at Bloomsbury said, I, I really like what you're writing, but you're writing it for non-football fans. You're, it, it comes back to our conversation about pods. He said, you're, you're, you're explaining too much. Just assume that nobody who doesn't like football will read this book. And once he told me that, it became a joy to write. And just learning about club. I mean, just I, I didn't know, for example, that the first black manager in English football was, was Rochdale in 1962. And I love football. I had no idea about that. And I didn't know that he'd also played... I, I didn't know that he'd also played for... For Palace, I, you know, I didn't know that there was a team in Rotherham at one stage called Luna Rovers who only played by Moonlight. I, I, I didn't realise. <laughs> no, there's, come on. I know, no, there's all these facts. I, there's, 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 there's all, I mean, I, you shouldn't use, there's all these things because one of the themes of the book is that even, inte- I'm an intelligent person, but if a bloke in a pub tells me something about football, I believe it absolutely implicitly. And it's like the West Brom chapter. I write about the eight different reasons that West Brom fans have for them being called the baggies. They're all bollocks. They're all, none of them can be true, but they all yeah. firmly believe that, that these are the reasons why they're called the baggies. So I wanted yeah. to tap into that level of of, of, of fandom that, for, that people who don't like football simply won't understand. Yeah, they simply won't understand why the mere mention of Dave Swindlehurst's perm will still get a laugh around the table <laughs> in our pub. The mere mention of the, the, the second half, the Sheffield United away game, it was so foggy, we we could, we didn't see a thing in the second We just spent the, the whole of the second half chatting to the Sheffield United goalkeeper and to two really angry coppers who thought the game should have been called off and they should be at home in the nice, warm... You know, it's it's that <laughs> level of thing. It's, it's that level of football fandom that I wanted to tap into. But it's also a proper history... Of each club, so there's a, there's there's something about each club in there. Before I then talk about my relationship with that club, whether it's a a particular game or or the fact that you know Shrewsbury, for example, um, on the big match, and I love match of the day, and I worked on it for ten seasons. But for me, and like a lot of people, my favourite program was the big match because that was the, the the London football program, and and Brian Moore is still one of my idols. But but once a year they would show highlights from around the country and, and every now and again Shrewsbury would come up. It was always be like the third match and maybe it would be Shrewsbury against Orient or something. But yeah. Brian Moore used to go get hysterical about the coracle behind the, the ground at Shrewsbury. Yeah, yeah. The fact that this guy had to go out in a little boat. And the first time I went to Shrewsbury as a 17-year-old, I couldn't wait to see the... We were so excited about the coracle. And it's the same like going to, when we used to go to Fulham away games at Fulham when you could still see the river and there was a, a, a race going on, a training race. And these people were astonished because the, the game was so shit that all the Palace fans were just watching this race. And we all went absolutely mental when this boat won because they had red and blue shirts on. And it's like, it's that level of... of, of <laughs> but it's just fascinating me, the fact... I mean, I always thought that 92 clubs was too many for a small country anyway, but it, it turns out at one stage there were about 400 clubs. But... The, yeah. the, diff- the difficulty is tying down the history of any club because 
I played, I was the world's worst Sunday football. I was a shocking Sunday football. I was, I was keen, but I was so slow. And I, 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 people thought I was dirty. I wasn't. I was just slow. But I, I played for five different Sunday league teams, but they were essentially the same team. It's just that we, you know, we'd move to a different pub or we'd get a new sponsor or a new kit. But they were the same team. But we never thought to write down the history of any of those clubs because we knew we would never become a Premier League team. And it's the same for a lot of clubs. So so tying down the actual history was really, really fascinating. You know, I, it was a joy to write. And the Northampton chapter was one of my favourites because, again, it's one of the things that Brian Moore used to be obsessed about. The fact is that you know, your ground only had three sides. I mean, that, <laughs> that just astonished him. And, and as a kid... You pick up on any fact that because as a kid, you know, it's like between I think between eight and 12 is the most joyful time of being a football fan. There was a there was a time when if you if you threw any club name at me, I'd tell you the the ground, the manager, the players, the kit, the the badge, the nickname. Like you knew all these facts. And there was a time it, I was fascinated if, if you found something new and you think oh, there's a football club with with only three sides to it. So that's you start off from a, and then of course there's two things about Northampton and the first one and I'm really really sorry but my idol was George Best so I had to write I had to write about that game I, I really had to write about that but then yeah. researching that was brilliant because looking for interviews from some of the Northampton players especially the the, the one who scored it was like it was the the, the bet yeah it was brilliant I scored a goal against Man United unfortunately they scored eight but See, the, the reaction of the chairman was, was fantastic because I didn't notice. It was a brilliant quote from the chairman saying that they, they completely let down the whole the whole town, the whole county. That was, um, his name is Eric Northover. And yeah. that, that just, I just thought that was brilliant. And But then looking into the history of, of Northampton, I didn't realise that Herbert Chapman had been at Northampton, for example, and had, yeah. and had started some of his brilliant football experiments there. And then, of course, I'd heard of Walter Tull, and I knew that he played for Northampton, but then you mm. research. So the second part of the the, the, the chapter is all about Walter Toll um, and what an amazing man he was, and how it's it's shameful. And Northampton have have um, served his memory brilliantly. I think what Northampton have done around the memory of Walter Toll, who not only was the second black footballer, but you know the first black officer to lead white soldiers into battle in in World War One, was killed in battle. Um, his life was nearly saved by Leicester's goalkeeper at the time because they were in this footballer's battalion. So so the second part of the, the, the book is about is about Walter Toll, basically, and how proud football should be, or Northampton should be of Walter Toll, but also how shameful it is that football doesn't celebrate Walter Toll more widely. The fact that, you know, Tony Collins, who was the manager of Rochdale, why, do, why does football not, is not telling that story beyond me. And yeah, the other thing I love about Northampton is the kit. I'm, I'm a, I've got such a kit fit. I love football kits. And your kit was always a bit different. The white one with the, the maroon circles, I, I used yeah. to love. Any, any kit that was slightly different, I yeah, used to love. Yeah, that was a nice one. So there's all these, so that's part of the book as well. It's not just all these strange reasons you have for, for disliking a team. It's all these strange reasons you have for Actually, not. I would never admit out loud that I like any other team because, I, I, of course, I don't really. But there's always teams that you kind of have a soft spot for. It's like in in Scotland. I still love Dunfermline because, as a kid, there was a brilliant picture in this shoot annual of a Dunfermline player who'd been tackled and he, he was in such agony that he was biting the shin pad of the St Mirren player. Um, <laughs> I, I, I genuinely thought that was the best football picture. I'd ever seen in my life. So, so since then, you kind of you look out for Dunfermline's results, and it's the same. 
it, it, yeah. it's the same for everything. You find a reason to to kind of not dislike any other team. And I think as well, you get kind of protective towards teams. You know, I mean, when you've grown up with teams, you you kind of get protective. And when you reading the book has made me even more angry about Berry because when you start to read about Berry and what they've done because you kind of go yeah all right I know about Berry they're very unsuccessful football team they're in the shadow of Manchester but then you read about their their history and you think that was allowed to go and it's you do get protective of these teams because yeah the Premier League is great it's great to watch I really want to stay in there because you see great players but the football is football is Northampton town basically football is Mansfield football is Exeter Football is yeah. the teams that aren't in there. It's Wrexham. It's all those people like that. And it, it it kind of breaks my heart that there are so many football fans who think it's a disaster. They think it's almost shameful to not be in the Premier League. And it, yeah. it simply isn't. And this, you know, the championship is a basket case. You know, for, for, for every £100 that championship clubs bring in, uh, in in finances, a hundred and seventeen pound minimum is going out on on wages. But between them, the championship is about fifty four billion pound in debt, because they're yeah. all desperately chasing the holy grail of the Premier League. And and when I was growing up, it's like fine, you wanted to be in Division One, but if you were in Division Two or Division Three, as we were for three seasons, that just meant you had different away games to go to. You had different fans to to meet. It was never a disaster mm. like it is it is it is now. And and. And also, I just love talking to football. I love talking to football fans about their their club. I love hearing facts. Mm. I mean, I've learned through reading the book to take some of them with a with a pinch of salt. But <laughs> I love because because and that's the other thing in the book that I can't stress enough to people. You know, Macclesfield going out of business. Macclesfield means as much to five thousand people as Man United does to five million. Or more. Yeah, exactly. It's as simple as that. Yeah, Northampton Town is as important as Liverpool. Full stop. Yeah. You know, yeah. Anything else, the, the numbers are just details. It's simple as that, you know. But you, you've got your your heroes that you talk about that the rest of us might not have heard of. But, but there's to you, they are the centre of the world, and that's how it it should be. You know, Eddie McGoldrick, for example. We both got. I love the fact that we've both got Eddie McGoldrick in in common. And it's like yeah. it's one of the things I say in the book. I genuinely feel sorry for for people who don't like football because what do you talk about to strangers at weddings? Yeah. It's like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's like before the before all this happened, one of my mates' uh, kids got married, and I was like put on a table because he liked to you know mix me with strangers, which is a punishment because he knows I don't like strangers particularly well. But you sit down at a table, and I went, "Oh, what a terrible time to have a wedding!" Three o'clock on a Saturday, and everyone looked at me blankly, and you think, "Oh God, this is going to be a long afternoon." <laughs> Whereas if 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 one of, if Tom had been there or Andy had been there. They yeah. Were, yeah, I'm missing Northampton MK Dons today. And I'd go, Eddie McGoldrick. And then within 10 minutes, we'd be talking about football and putting the world to rights. And because <laughs> we, we have all this in common. That's, and yeah, we've got rivalries, but we've got we've got more that unites us and divides us. And like Eddie, it's like, I think it's brilliant that we can talk about Eddie McGoldrick. And, and the fact is as well, one of the reasons I love football so much, and I, I'm sorry, I'm aware... I do tend to give essay answers to short questions. I apologise for that. But one of the things I love so much is that Eddie McGoldrick was a brilliant footballer. He's a brilliant footballer. But we, that's, that's not what we talk about. We talk about his moustache is what we talk about. Because <laughs> it, it was a thing of joy. Yeah. And, and he knows that as well. And because and, he's, he's still involved with Palace. And we've had him on on our Palace pod a couple of times. And we, in fact, the second time we had him on was because we couldn't broadcast half the stories he told us 
the first time. Um, and I used to, he was a massive comedy fan as well. So I got to know him quite well when he was at Palace. He was a he was big mates with Sean Hughes, God rest his soul. But and it, it, he's a he's an intelligent, funny. Yeah, occasionally abrasive man who was a really, really good footballer. I mean, he was brilliant for us as a sweeper. He played sweeper at some stage, um, yeah. and he, he he referred to it. He mistakenly referred to himself as Verazi once in the Croydon Advertiser, and I'm sure he was joking, but he shouldn't have made that. <laughs> so that's that's what. That's, so those are the things that you remember. We remember his moustache, and oh yeah, Franco Verazi's at it again, is he? And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what, and that's what football's brilliant. That's it's those sort of idiot idiot details that. Yeah, I, I would be mystifying to somebody else that that I love about it, and I I'm I do I, I love it, and I love like yeah I love talking to you about football. I'll talk. I'll unfortunately I've just realised the time, so I can't be here all day. But <laughs> I, I, you know what I mean. It, and it's like if if I was asked to do the Tranmere podcast next week, I would happily do that because yeah, I like and I like learning about other clubs, and I like yeah, you know, just. I love your energy and your enthusiasm that you have, not just for Northampton Town, but for football in general. It helps when it turns out that we pretty much agree on how football should be run and how it isn't run. But at the same time, I don't think there are many football fans who would radically disagree with anything that we've said today about about football, about football's economics and about football's business. Well, this is it. Everyone would agree, apart from the people who actually, you know, are holding the levers of power. That's, that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a constant tug. That's the, dile- that's the dilemma, isn't it? And it's, yeah. It's I, the, the energy that fuels all this. Really. It's yeah. what makes the world turn, isn't it? It, it, it is, yeah. And I, I, I don't know whether one good thing that comes out of the pandemic is that football finances may settle down a little bit. I, I suspect not. I suspect that we'll probably have a European Super League in the next decade or so. But then again, that might... That might be nice as well because you know the people that are only that are in football just to see their team win trophies might disappear, bugger off back to where they came from, and it we, you know it might be left with slightly fewer football fans, but a more realistic financial model, and it you know it might be easier for some clubs to climb the table and and go back down the table without it being the worst thing that ever happened. Yeah, that's that's very true. Well, we wrap up now because we've been talking for ages it's been really really interesting and just yeah finding some really good stories really recommend the book uh who definitely are... thank oh, you yeah, and I, I listened to kevin on the podcast and he he likes to say available in uh, all good bookshops and some <laughs> bad ones as well <laughs> yeah, so, I was gonna say to you, kevin what makes a bad bookshop like terrible service like just throwing the book at you get out <laughs> actually that sounds like quite a good routine actually I've just uh, I, it's an old joke that I've always wanted to tell that's one of the reasons I wrote the book so I'd get to say that joke but actually that's <laughs> you've given me an idea there Tom about a, a routine for what makes a bad bookshop it's like it's it's funny it's like, I'm on a bound to say that if you can buy the book in local bookshops that would be brilliant but um yeah. to be honest the way my finances are I'm perfectly happy for you to go and get it on Amazon to be perfectly frank <laughs> but of course but if you can support local independent bookshops that's that's fantastic. I mean, that's one of the reasons the, the Brighton chapter was a, an issue with my editor, because initially my idea for the Brighton chapter was it would just be a picture of a seagull nicking a chip from a toddler. Um, but he, he <laughs> Covered in hummus as well. It's got our hummus on the yeah, exactly. <laughs> But he said that was childish. Um, so I wrote I wrote a proper history of Brighton, acknowledging the rivalry as well. But um, I spelt Brighton, as I always do, with a lowercase b all the way through. And again, he thought that was childish. So he maybe put a capital B in. 
Uh, and it turned out it's because Brighton's got more independent bookshops than any other town in the country. Basically, that was his that was his logic. So then I got cross because I said, well, you're putting foot, you're putting sheer economics above football, you know, funny. And he went, well, you haven't got any other work, have you? So I went, oh, fire, fair enough. OK, let's 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 do that. But it's um, he's a South End fan, my editor, which so he's got his own problems, basically. But uh, that ties yeah. it up quite nicely, Kevin, because I've got a bugbear with South End. I don't particularly like South End. Cause I remember going to one game in the away end and I paid loads of money to get in. And there was a massive pole in the way, like a metal pole. I couldn't see half the game. So that ties up quite nicely. I don't like South End because that, of that. And see, that's, that's, hatred. that's exactly the sort of childish resentment that this book is about. Yes. That's, and that, that does brilliantly sum it up because like, as soon as I say South End, you go... I travelled all that way and I couldn't see the bloody game. That's that's brilliant. It's it's also I'd say one of my favourite stories. One of my best mates is South End fan, but one of my favourite stories in the book. And and again, non-football fans look at me blankly when I tell this story. But um, it was a, we were playing them in the in the League Cup as was, uh, and we'd been there a lot of the day in the pub by the seaside, uh, and the away end was packed as it nearly always is with Palace fans. South End's not that far, and. Halfway through the second half, over the tannoy came this announcement. It said, you know, would Mr. Terry Fletcher from Croydon uh, please make his way home because his wife has just gone into labour. And and the whole ground burst into spontaneous applause. It was lovely. This chap has been told that his wife had gone into labour. And then he stood up to leave and the whole ground, not just the culture, <laughs> the whole ground started singing part-time supporter at him. <laughs> All of and he got visibly furious he was just like he started miming that his wife was pregnant and he had to go and it was just like it was, it was again it's just like if you're, if you're not a football yeah. fan you miss out on those those moments yeah. you know and and sometimes the best moments as you know the best moments happen when there's only 200 of you in a away game on a wednesday night do you know what i mean and you you get the bragging rights in because you were one of the 200 like we palace hadn't won an away game for for a year and a half when we went to Wrexham one game in the eighties, it was about, I think it's probably 140 of us on the, on the train. And then maybe 200 others drove up. So there's only 300 Palace fans. And we, we won one nil. It was our first away win for, for ages. So of course for two years, we just had the bragging rights. Cause you know, I was at Wrexham you know, and, and any, anytime somebody got up a tea in the pub was like, oh, I didn't see you at Wrexham. Were you at Wrexham? <laughs> well, your, your view doesn't count then, does it? So that's, that's the, what the book reflects. And, you know, and, and that reflects in talking to you as well. I and mean, that story about the South End in the poll was perfect. You don't, yeah. you don't like it for the simple reason that you had to crane your neck slightly to see the game. And that's, that's. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a, a day out in Canvey Island, um, which, you know, back in those days, it weren't the most salubrious of places. I remember going to a, a pub, but it's called the nice person's pub. I was just thinking, what are they trying to say? Like yes, <laughs> most uh, about full of nice people. <laughs> that's well, funny enough, uh, on the way to on the way to a Norwich game once we stopped in a pub in in Norfolk which was called the Travellers Arms and on the door was a sign saying no travellers oh, <laughs> which, which again it's one of those things you have to take a photograph of with a palace scarf draped around it otherwise it didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> but listen um Kevin it's been really fun talking to you and Andy and um sort of keep in touch as well because um you know we never know our, when our Pars will cross again. We can have a bit more Eddie McGoldrick talk. We've got a few more stories to um, to yeah. tell you, including the one where he went to the uh, Palace in his sponsored car from Northampton. I think it had Bell's whiskey written on the side. It was some sort of like Ford or something. And then the Palace players were like, Ian Wright and that were like, what is, all, what is this? What is this? Remember that, Andy? Yeah, he had a couple of meetings in the space of a few days. It was like David Pleat, wasn't it, at the uh, 
Colliday in Melton Mowbray on the Friday night, and then he went to see Ron Nodes on the Sunday. Great, great days. Great days. <laughs> All right, it's been lovely talking to you both. And, um, you know, if we, if we ever need to get you on Price of Football to talk Northampton, I hope we never do. But, uh, yes, yeah, so hopefully we'll talk again. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.